0: I am Pastor Nathan and today, we are gonna be talking about fire and brimstone. (laughs) Despair and destruction. I feel like Gladriel from Lord of the Rings. All right, Um, but have you ever heard that phrase, fire and brimstone? It's a phrase that I think many of us have heard. Uh, The concept of fire and brimstone preaching is how it's used most often. And and this phrase is used to describe preachers who um, use vivid descriptions of judgment and eternal damnation to encourage repentance. And uh, fire and brimstone preaching is either characterized or caricatured as as a preacher slamming their Bible on the pulpit. And I won't do that because I preach from a tablet and I don't want to break it. waving their hands in the air, yelling, screaming, you know, very excited type preaching. But today, that phrase fire and brimstone preaching carries largely a negative connotation. Um, The term actually comes from Scripture because in Scripture we see this this phrase fire and brimstone or fire and sulfur um, used to um, identify or signify God's judgment. On sin and God's judgment when he when he brings that judgment down or seen as as God's purifying agent you know we see this in Genesis 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah we see it in Deuteronomy 29 Isaiah 30 and 34 Ezekiel 38 Psalms 11 there's a lot of places and you especially see it uh, many times in the book of Revelation for example Revelation nineteen twenty, it tells us but the beast was taken prisoner and along with it, the false prophet. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And that word sulfur in the Greek is, is brimstone and that's where this phrase comes from. Now some of the great preachers of the Great Awakening period, which was the 1730s to the 1740s, were known positively, in a positive sense, as fire and brimstone preachers. Um, At least they're looked back on that today by a lot of people, people like George Whitefield, Jonathan Edwards, whose famous ser- sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, kind of characterized this period of this very excited preaching that brought the concepts of judgment and judgment on sin and the call to repentance. But today, there's, there's not, at least in, in, in my understanding, there's not many preachers that would be glad to be referred to or labeled as fire and brimstone preachers because of the negative connotation of the term. And a lot of that is because that phrase fire and brimstone preaching brings to mind angry, joyless, despair-filled fear mongers banging on the pulpit, pointing the finger in accusation. And because of that, topics of hell and sin or judgment are then associated with this type of thought and lumped into the negative connotation of fire and brimstone preaching. As such, much modern preaching and teaching, uh, if you spend some time online and on YouTube and stuff, a lot of it avoids hell, avoids judgment, avoids the topic of sin at all costs. Because they say, well, you know, you, we bring that into our pulpits and our churches. You know, it's going to drive people away. It's going to offend people. It's going it's to cause all these negative things. And, you know, I'll, I'll concede very gladly that, that there have been times where maybe there's been an overemphasis on fire and brimstone preaching where it has been done too much or leaned on too heavily. But um, the result then is much of the preaching in the world today um, because there's been such an aversion to preaching judgment, hell, and sin, is that a uh, lot of churches, they just focus on preaching positive things, and nothing but positive things, and happy things, and you know, prosperity, and your best life now. You know, My mom used to tell me growing up, as I would uh, invite her to come to know Jesus, and come to church and stuff, she'd be like, ah, I know all about that, and this was before she was saved, but she would say growing up, All church was, was fire and brimstone, hellfire and damnation. And she's like, I'm just not interested in that. Well, today, there will be some fire. (laughs) Today, there will be some brimstone. Okay? Now, not fire in the modern slang sense. You know, uh, in modern slang, fire means something really good. Um, I was blessed last week uh, uh, a new member of the congregation here came up to you after and and just paid me what I received as a a really wonderful compliment from the younger generation and she said pastor Nathan your sermons are fire (laughs) and I was like well thank you for that (laughs) I mean I appreciate I received that compliment you know Um, but I don't mean fire in that context I mean fire in the context of of that which the false apostate teachers are bringing uh, to the body, that which they bring being dangerous, that, sh- that which they bring leading to hell, leading to judgment, leading to fire. Now, I don't intend to ever be a teacher whose, whose sole focus is hellfire and judgment, um, nor would I ever wanna be known as that, but when the hard in your face challenging, difficult things present themselves in the text, the biblical text we're going over, we're not going to skip it. We're not going to skip it even if it's uncomfortable. We're not going to skip it even if it's intense. We're not going to skip it if it's accusatory or challenging. Now, this may be not what you were hoping for in church today. This may be not what you were looking forward to. And if you're new here today at Hosanna, both here and online, this isn't our sole focus. This isn't the type of teaching that we do every single week. But we do teach the entire Bible here at Hosanna. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. And we happen to be in the book of Jude this morning which overwhelmingly brings the fire and it brings the brimstone as it calls us to fight for the truth and aggressively calls out those who deny the truth, who reject the truth, those who rebel against the truth and plainly addresses the truth of the judgment of God that will come upon those who do so. Now, yeah, Jude rolls up his sleeves and tells it like it is. And the four verses we're looking at this morning, verses 12 through 15, remind us of the danger that apostates are to the church. The danger that apostate teaching, false teaching, is to the church. And if you remember, apostate just simply means someone who is defected from the truth. So the warning, the danger, and the description of what they bring, that's the fire we're gonna be looking at this morning. That's the despair. That's the danger they bring. Then we'll be looking at the future judgment that is gonna come upon all who abandon truth, who reject truth, specifically the truth of God. Jesus Christ in the flesh come to die for our sins who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, the only means of salvation rejecting that truth will lead to the judgment of God. That's the brimstone, that's the destruction, that's the judgment to come. So buckle up, it's gonna be a fun day, let's pray. Father, Lord we welcome your truth, all of it. God your truth is, is just that, true. And so God there is the truth that you love us, there is the truth that you died for our sins, there is the truth that you paid the price for our sins, Lord, but those truths are true because of the truth that goes with them, because there was a penalty for the sin that we have committed, that there's a judgment to come on those who have broken your law, and Lord, you provided the way to to avoid that judgment, Lord, to, to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ, but Lord, there are many in this world today who have twisted the truth of who Jesus is, that twists the truth of what the Bible says, Lord, and God, there are many today who have created their own versions of faith and their own versions of Jesus and their own versions of salvation so that they could continue living contrary to God's law and still have a sense of their own peace, that they're going to be okay and that you're going to welcome them. And God, your word is very clear that those who don't have Jesus will have the judgment, that those who don't have forgiveness will have the sentence of death passed upon them. And so, Lord, today as we look at what Jude is saying to those he's writing to, Lord, that we would receive the warning, we would uh, receive the the intent and even the intensity of what he is saying, God, that we would be people who heed the warnings of God and that as Christians who are genuinely and truly saved, God, we would be people who so believe in the judgment to come that we would be then motivated with broken hearts for the lost to go out and to preach the gospel and to bring the hope of salvation to those that don't have it. Lord, we love you, we thank you, but God, we want to start this morning with worshiping you because you are our Savior. You are the the one who died for us and made the way, and we love you for it. God, thank you. Thank you for your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Read with me in uh, Jude. We are in verse 12, but... The, the four verses we're looking at this morning, they're separated into two sections, verses um, uh Well, that didn't make sense. My notes don't make sense now. The first section is talking about the danger, the danger that the apostate teachers bring and the danger it is to the church. And then the next two verses after that actually deal with the judgment and a very vivid description um, of of what's to come and why it's going to happen. And so he's dealing with both a present danger that exists in the church today and it existed at his time. And then he deals with very direct, the judgment that will come on all who deny the truth all who reject the truth all who rebel against the truth So read with me verse 12 He says these people referring to these apostate false teachers And those who embrace this false teaching these people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence They are shepherds who only look after themselves They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. That's the fire. That's the finger pointing accusatory description, true description of the people and the these people and the danger they bring. Then in verse 14, he goes, It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. And that's the brimstone. Now, You know, these concepts of judgment upon the earth and judgment upon people, whether it's fire and brimstone, despair and destruction or judgment, these thoughts really aren't something that's even on the mind of the modern world, especially the modern world without Christ. Hell is not politically correct in today's world. We live in an age of tolerance and an age of acceptance In an age of all truths are true, and nothing is wrong, and no judgment, and how dare anyone pass judgment or suggest judgment on anybody in any way, shape, or form. Sadly, um, there are many within what we would call the church today, believers or professed believers, that consider hell and the concepts of hell and judgment as theological offenses that are never to be brought up. And that is characteristic of a lot of preaching and teaching today that avoids these uncomfortable topics. Now to the world, there is no such thing as a false teacher because to the world, nobody can be absolutely sure of anything anyways and so therefore truth is not objective but truth is subjective and that's where we get the ideas of your truth and my truth. Now, in a world with this type of thinking, the very idea of discernment is not welcome. To be able to say, this is right, and this is wrong, this is good, and this is evil, this is true, and this is false, to be able to do that in the world's thinking is not only wrong, but to do so is actively and intentionally hateful and bigoted, and all of these words that are used in the world today to describe believers who say, no, this is the truth of God's word, and therefore, this is how we should live. But Jude exercises discernment without apology. And he does so because I want to remind us of a truth that Jude has raised up and a truth that John raised up in his letters, that one of the most loving things we can ever do is to tell someone the truth of the matter. It is not loving to withhold truth from somebody just because we think it might offend or it might harm them in some way or it might hurt their feelings. To, to withhold truth for that is not loving and yet in the name of love, that is exactly what the world does today. We want to deny truth. We want to withhold truth. And so before Jude gets to the judgment on those who reject, reject truth, he opens with how dangerous those who embrace and those who teach twisted truth, specifically biblical scriptural truth, are. So verse 12, he opens up and he says, these people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. This description speaks to the deceptive nature of apostates. And he uses this phrase, dangerous reefs, that refers to a rocky hazard that is typically hidden under the waves, right? Now, it's interesting. The Greek word translated dangerous reefs here can actually be translated two different ways. And there's some disagreement amongst Bible translators on how it's to be translated. But it ultimately arrives at the same point. In the CSB, and the NASB, and the Amplified Version, in the ESV, it is translated as dangerous reefs. But in the NLT and the New King James and the ISV and the NRSV, it's translated spot or stain or blemish. So if you're reading one of the translations and you go, it doesn't say dangerous reefs in my Bible. It says spot or blemish. That is why. This word can be translated both ways, and it's really up to the translators and how they do it. But I'm going with the CSB version here. Dangerous reefs. If you've ever been sailing, or interested in sailing, or you've been a, a person who goes surfing or bodyboarding, you might be familiar with the concepts of the danger of reefs, coral reefs. Because they grow right under the surface of the water where the waves break. And they're very dangerous because they're sharp. And you don't see them until the last minute, or you know they're there, but if you take a tumble, riding a wave over some reefs, you smash into these, these um, uh, structures that can cut and bruise and harm you they can actually hurt you really really bad you know if it's the concept of rocks in a rocky hazard lying below the surface we all know the concepts of ships running aground right where if a ship gets too close to these rocky hazards that are right below the surface it can actually damage the ship's ability to, to be a ship right it can't float because there's a big hole in its side and so these people that bring these false truths, he describes as dangerous reefs, reefs, and he says they're at your love feasts. I wanna deal with that a little bit because people are like, What is a love feast, right? Well, in the early church, love feasts were actually a part of the service, a part of the gathering. For example, like the church would get together and they would gather for a time of worship, much like we do today, and then they would have a time of teaching, much like we do today. Often they would share communion together, if not every time, but periodically like we do today. But in the early church, they would also have then this potluck every single time the church got together. And they were called love feasts. Now these love feasts were an important part of the early church because many of the poor people in the early church kind of depended on these opportunities to eat. It was a place where they can go and get their needs met and get fed, and it was also a great opportunity for those with means in the church to come and provide for those that were, that were struggling, much like our adoptive family program we do here. But they would do this as a part of every single church service. There was this big potluck, or pot faith if you call it that, after every church service. The problem was, is in the early church, these love feasts started to get abused. They started to get abused. And if you read in First Corinthians chapter 11, you could read a whole section there where Paul is really chastising the Corinthian church, basically telling them, look, your love feasts are getting out of control, right? They're, they're, they're moving from an opportunity to gather together as a church and to minister to one another to a party. Like some of you are using them as an opportunity to get drunk. Some of you are like, you know, like, hey, let me have extra communion because you just really want the wine. And, and, and they're just out of control. He even mentions that where there were some people, these love feasts that would like kind of uh, show up and eat all the food before everybody else had an opportunity to get any. And so Paul kind of chastised the out of control love feast in 1 Corinthians 11. And eventually, within the history of the church, um, if you look at church history, the love feasts, kind of stopped being a regular part of the church gathering. And so you don't see really an, an every single Sunday type of situation with love feasts today, but at the time Jude was writing this letter, they were still a regular part of the church services. And so he goes, these are dangerous people. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast. And you look at the reason, why does he describe them as dangerous reefs? Well, as we said, reefs lie just below the surface. And they're a danger that you don't see until it's too late. On the surface, you might think everything looks fine. Everything is okay, everything is good. But right below the surface is a dangerous situation that could bring great harm to you. And Judah's saying, look, there are those among you who have come in by stealth, participating in the church community, participating in the church life, and they do so, it says, without reverence. That word reverence there refers to being without shame that they participate in the church life, but they behave in a way that is contrary to to the word of God. They bring false truths in, whether it's by their words or by their example. And they have no shame, no reverence for how their behavior is negatively affecting other people. And this is how he's describing them. They do so without reverence. And so they're false truths about Christianity. They're false truths about Christian living that they try and share with people as part of small groups and community groups or church services or gatherings. Uh, These false truths that they example in their own behavior while initially possibly sounding good on the surface ultimately lead to great harm. Then he says they are shepherds who only look after themselves. The first one spoke to their destructive nature. This one speaks to their selfish nature. You know, claiming to be people whose care and concern is for the flock and the family, right? That's often how apostates will come in and say, oh, you know what? I just, I care about you so much. I want to I wanna bring the real truth. I want to bring revelation to your life because, you know, that stuff you're following in the Bible, you know, oh, you know actually, I discovered the secret thing through this secret whatever, and, and, and I just, I care about you so much. And so, you know, for only, you know, thirty nine ninety nine, you could buy my series that will, that will teach you the real truth. You see where I'm going with this? They really only have care and concern for themselves, their own needs, their own wants. And, and for some, it's a selfish need to be known. It's a selfish need to be wanted or to be needed or to have influence and control. And so under the illusion of taking care of others, under the illusion of God maybe has appointed me with a special message. It's really all about benefiting themselves and so they oppose as people with spiritual authority but their teaching and their counsel ultimately does not line up with the word of God. He says they are waterless clouds carried along by the winds and this speaks of the emptiness of their promises. You know clouds, when we see clouds often, especially in in agrarian cultures, clouds would promise rain. Right, Clouds are coming, that means rain is gonna come and that's good for the crops and that's good for the grass and that's good for us and and there's refreshment that's promised with that. But there's really nothing worse than hot, still, stale heat, is there? No shade, no water, no refreshment. I mean it's just the idea of imagine being in the desert Right, and you're in like one of the deserts where it's just like an endless horizon of just sweltering heat, and you're like, all you want is a little bit of shade. All you want is a little bit of water, something refreshing to, to break the, the intensity of the, of, the, of the moment and the situation. And you see clouds on the horizon, oh boy. Shade is coming, rain is coming. That's what clouds mean, but then they just go, <sighs> nothing. Nothing of benefit, nothing good. They promised something, but they failed to deliver. And that's how he's describing apostates and false teachers. You know, Proverbs 25:14 says, the one who boasts about a gift that does not exist is like clouds and wind without rain. Can you imagine that? How great would Christmas be if your parents were like, oh boy, oh Christmas. <laughs> Man, that tree, is, the tree is going to be sitting on a mountain of gifts. Oh, wow, and you're just like, oh, and you look forward to it, and then Christmas comes and goes and not a single gift. How would you feel? You'd feel lied to, betrayed, let down. Like, where was, where was the fulfillment of the promise? And so false teachers and those who promote false spiritual truth are like just big, empty, puffy clouds that just blow right by and provide no water, no shade, no benefit. Then he says, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. You know, you can't be any more devoid of anything beneficial than being a twice dead, uprooted, fruitless tree. I mean, that's a pretty stark description here. And this speaks of why they provide no benefit, why their promises are empty. And it's really because they don't know God. They don't know the truth. So the the what they're bringing isn't truth and can't be truth. You know, he goes, trees in late autumn. The description there was that, that autumn was, was really the, the last opportunity for harvest, right? It was right before winter, right before the, the ground froze over, and so autumn was the, late, the last opportunity to get a good harvest, and you wanted a good harvest because when winter came, when the difficult times came, if you didn't have a good harvest, you might starve. You might starve. But with these people, they are trees in late autumn, meaning they have nothing of benefit to anybody coming from them and coming out of them. And the reason, the reason they're fruitless is he says they're twice dead. Now you might be like, what does he mean by twice dead? <laughs> you know, isn't being dead good enough? Why do you got to be twice dead? Well, I believe that he's referring to a concept that the Bible talks about, meaning um, everybody dies once, but not everybody will die twice, right? We have the concepts in Scripture that all will die physically. Every single one of us is gonna die physically. We're not gonna get out of this life alive. But not all of us will escape the spiritual death that is to come, the second death that the book of Revelation talks about. Not all of us will escape that. Some of us, will die physically and then go on to eternal life because we are saved, we are connected to Jesus, we have received eternal life, we are born again. But some will die physically and then they will also die spiritually, suffering that second death. And so I believe it's speaking to, to apostates' lack of connection to Christ, their lack of being in the family of God, their lack of connection to truth. And so these things that they bring, they're, they're, they're fruitless. They, they have no benefit to you, and they're false because they're not connected to the truth. And then that also ties into the concept of being uprooted, right? A tree that isn't connected to the ground. A tree whose roots are not connected into that which is supposed to supply nourishment. And the idea is is that they're not connected to Christ because they're not even in the family. They're not a believer. And the result is nothing life-giving comes from them. You know, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, Jesus was speaking of false spiritual leaders. And he said, Every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. So in verse 13, he goes on to describe them. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. This speaks of their um, destructive nature. We had their deceptive nature. We had their selfish nature. We had the reason for their selfish nature is that they're they're not connected to truth in any way, and then we see their destructive nature. If you've ever surfed or bodyboarded, I did when I was in high school, you, you might know the difference between formed waves and storm waves, right? Formed waves are wonderful. Right? Those are ideal for people who like to surf because they're formed. They break a certain way, whether they break left or break right. You can predict where the wave's coming from so that you can paddle out and not get beaten up trying to get out to the waves. And they're just a really good and, and beneficial wave. They're, they're, they're uh, wave. They're precise. They're consistent. But storm waves are uncontrolled, unpredictable, dangerous, Riptides and such are inside them. And those who teach and embrace unbiblical falsehoods, what he's saying here, are dangerous and unpredictable. They're like wild waves. And then he says, foaming up their shameful deeds. I was like, what does that mean? Well, there's a scripture in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, that says, But the wicked are like the storm tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up the mire. And the muck. That's the idea of foaming up. We live in Southern California, so we have access to the beach, but I don't know how many of you have ever tried to visit the beach after a really bad storm. Typically, the California Health Department will close the beaches for a couple days. they will say the water's unsafe. It, it's, it's, it's toxic. They'll, you know, the storm has churned up all kinds of pollution. Mainly nowadays, it's human pollution, hypodermic needles wash up and trash washes up, but the water is just toxic and unhealthy. And so after a storm, they say, don't go in the water because it has churned up that which is filthy and unhealthy. And the behavior and the actions and the lifestyle and the result of the false truths that apostates bring stirs up the filth. It'll get you sick spiritually. Then he calls them wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. This to me speaks of how they don't know the way. They don't know the way. So they can't lead you or themselves to life. They can't lead you to salvation. They can't lead you to truth because they don't know the way. You know what's interesting about that phrase wandering stars is stars don't wander. Stars don't wander. That word wander means to aimlessly roam. And if you paid attention in, in, in class, you know, in school and stuff, or if you've learned, you know, how, how astronomy works and stuff, that, that stars have a fixed orbit. They, they roam, but it's not aimless. They have a fixed orbit. So regardless of the season, you know, ancient world, the, the, the position and the orbit of stars was so fixed that you could navigate by them. You could look up into the sky at any season and see the position of the stars and the constellations and know where you were at and where you were going and how to get there. They provided direction. But a wandering star, there is a thing that we refer to as a shooting star. And when we see something in the sky that we refer to as a shooting star, it's not actually a star at all but it's some type of debris in space that, that tends to get close to our atmosphere and then it enters the atmosphere and it streaks across the sky and burns up real quick, right, have you ever seen one of those? Not so much in Southern California where like there's stars up there? Never knew, right, because there's so much light pollution, but if you're ever out in the desert or something, you'll see stars, and every once in a while you'll see this bright flash. And you go, oh, it was a shooting star, but it's just some debris that for a moment entered the atmosphere and burned bright for a very short time and then vanished. But if you tried to navigate by one of these shooting stars, you'll end up lost. You'll end up who knows where. You could possibly end up dead. And so Jude describes these apostates, these apostate teachers and those who embrace these apostate truths in a very harsh way. And so you read these and you're like, okay Jude, how do you really feel about them? You know, they're dangerous reefs, self-absorbed shepherds, waterless clouds, twice-dead fruitless trees, wild, foaming waves, wandering stars. Or to put it another way, they're deceptive, selfish, full of empty promises, have, having false faith, destructive, aimless, not knowing the way. And back in verse 11, what did he say? Woe to them. Woe to them. Judgment fall upon them. Condemnation fall upon them. Woe to all who try to lure others away from the truth of Scripture into some falsehoods for their own benefits. And by extension, woe to all apostates. All who deny the truth of Scripture. All who rebel against the truth of Scripture. All who abandon God's truth. And Jude, if he was teaching today, I think he would be like, dear friends, as he opened the letter, right? Dear friends, there is among us in the global church community, people who participate in our church life, who are speaking and preaching their way towards the black hole of judgment from which there is no return. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Because they're leading you into one place, and that is destruction. But as he's writing to believers here this letter, what I also think he's saying is don't stand idly by while they preach and teach an example with their own life, their lies. Don't go, oh, it's no big deal. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. No, no because their lies are leading people to destruction. And that's why we're called to fight for the truth. He says up, on your feet, church, contend for the faith, fight for the faith, lest those you love be influenced by false teaching, or worse yet, become apostate themselves. Why do we stand for truth? Why do we fight for truth? Why do we boldly and proudly and confidently, yet lovingly proclaim truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did? Why do we fight against those who try and twist and say, no, Jesus is this and Jesus that? No, why do we say no? It is what the word of God says and nothing else. Why? It's because he is the only way He is the only truth, and He is the only path to eternal life. None come to the Father but through Him. And without Him as your Savior, without Him as He is revealed in His Word, judgment will fall upon you. As I said earlier, without Jesus, you have judgment, you have forgiveness or you have the blackness of eternal separation from him in hell forever. Do you know him today? Is he your savior today? Have you received the forgiveness that Jesus offers you through his death on the cross? Because if you haven't, judgment will fall upon you. And it's not a Jesus of your own making. It's not a Jesus where you've taken, well, I like this and I like this and I like this, and it's a Frankenstein Jesus. No, it's Jesus of the word of God as he is revealed. God in the flesh, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, who came to this earth, who died on the cross for your sins because he loved you so much. Have you put your faith in him? Have you trusted in him? If you have, you're saved. If you haven't, you're not, and there's no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There is no baptism of the dead. There is no second chance. This life is the one and only life you get to make a choice to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to receive the free gift of salvation he offers you. This is the only opportunity because if you leave this life and you haven't done that, it's the judgment. That's the truth of the word of God. It's the uncomfortable truth that the world wants to bury. And no, you can't live a life that is contrary to God's word and say, you know, I know God says it's, it's bad, but I believe it's okay and so I'm gonna live it anyways. You can't do that and still claim salvation. It really is God's way or no way. If you don't know him today, I beg that you would give your life to him today. I plead with you because judgment is coming. Judgment will fall upon you without the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse away all of your sin. And God will judge sin and all those who commit sin and all who have violated and reject his truth and his way. All who have denied him or twisted his truth or changed it, will suffer the judgment. And that's what Jude's going to describe real quick here. So we looked at five reasons why apostates and false teachers are dangerous. That was the fire. And so now Jude gives us five features of the coming judgment, and I'll go through this real quick. Look at verse 14. He says, It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly Concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way, and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Jude likes the word ungodly. He used it earlier in his letter, and here he just kind of slams the idea. Ungodly means ungodlike, not conformed to his image, not living according to his way and his word and his law, his truth as if Jude is is saying here in these verses, look, enough of this silly notion that, that God won't judge anyone. Enough with that type of thinking. The ungodly who are everywhere in every generation will be judged by Almighty God. And he says Enoch prophesied this. Enoch is a man we, we read about in Genesis chapter five. He lived before the flood wiped out the world, which incidentally was the judgment of God on the sinful world of the day. Enoch lived before that. And what we know about e- Enoch is he was a good, godly guy, and he lived and he spoke truth. Genesis 5:24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was so close to God that he was actually taken out of the world. He didn't die physically. He got taken out by God. Now, real fast, I want to deal with a slight issue here because you won't find this prophecy of Enoch in the Bible. You go look for it. You go read about Enoch's story. You won't find this prophecy. And most scholars note that Jude is quoting from um, a source that is not considered a scriptural, an inspired scriptural source known as First Enoch or the book of Enoch. We do have First Enoch or the book of Enoch. We have it today. Um, it's considered a non-scriptural, apocryphal book dated to about 300 to 200 B.C., But fragments of this this book of Enoch were found with the Dead Sea Scrolls when those were discovered, written in Aramaic and written in Greek and Latin. And so what that tells us is that this book of Enoch, although not inspired scripture, was a well-known writing of the early church, a well-known writing of the Jews. And so that's why we believe that that Jude is quoting from that. But it's never been uh, considered inspired scripture, therefore um, it's not in our canonized Bible, right? Um, In the uh, Catholic Bible, they have the Apocrypha, and you have these other books that are considered interesting historical books, but they're not considered inspired scripture. Now some have an issue with this. You know, how can Jude quote from something that isn't scripture, and then have that appear in scripture without then making the thing he quoted from scripture? Did you follow that, right? Well, first, quoting from a source that isn't considered inspired scripture is not a forbidden act. I quote from sources all the time in teaching and Bible studies that aren't inspired scripture. I'll quote what someone said, I'll quote what a study said or a website and stuff like that. Paul incidentally quoted from some secular sources of the time in Titus chapter 1 verse 12. He quoted from the Cretan poet Epimenides, quoted him. It's in scripture. He goes, "Yeah, he says Cretans are all liars." In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was standing before the Athenians, he quoted the Greek poet Aratus, who was well-known at the time. And he used the, these likely, very commonly known and understood sayings of the time to, to buttress his point about God that he was making. So we see Paul do the very same thing. But, but because Paul quoted Epimenides and Aratus, neither one of them are now considered inspired divine scripture, Right? And then what Jude quotes, likely from 1 Enoch, isn't something untrue in itself. Um, it's a true statement. It actually lines up very closely with Deuteronomy 33.2, if you want to look that up on your own time. Um, and then on top of that, like I said, we know Enoch was a real dude. Um, he was a real guy. He had great faith in God. He lived a righteous life, right? It says he walked with God. That means he lived in step with God. He lived in line with God's truth. And then Jude 14 calls him a prophet, says he prophesied. So we know that the, we have the testimony of what is considered inspired scripture that, that Enoch was a prophet of God, likely preaching the unwelcome truth of coming judgment before the flood. However, it's, I will say that, that no scholar that I could find really believes that the book of Enoch was actually written by Enoch. <laughs> right? It was more of a collection of sayings and stuff. But this particular quote, this particular quote that Jude uses here in verse 14 um, that is attributed to Enoch is evidently something that was considered uh, something Enoch did indeed say, or else what is inspired scripture would not have attributed it to him. Does that make sense? So, um, likely this is a true saying of Enoch that had been handed down by tradition. and was eventually recorded in first Enoch, which although is not inspired scripture itself contained what was likely a true saying of Enoch. So Jude quotes it here. Okay. So let's get past that. Um, but what Jude is saying here by quoting this prophecy of Enoch is that the final application of this prophecy will be in the end times when Jesus is, when Jesus returns. Jude is saying, look, you can have all these false teachers and, 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 and apostates embedding, embedding, themselves in the congregation, Living their very ungodlike lives, mouthing off with their empty false promises and twisted versions of the truth, and leading people astray. And that can happen, and that will happen, but God will always have the final word. And in their case, it's the judgment. So, real fast, let's look at these five features of the coming judgment. One, he said that the Lord comes. The Lord comes. First feature of the judgment to come is that God will handle it personally. It's not delegated to the judgment committee. It's not in some process of working through a bureaucracy of heaven. God himself will handle the judgment. And then it says he comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. That tells us that the judgment will be public. It will be seen. He's doing the judging, yes, but he will allow others to be witness to the judgment, and he will even allow others to help him carry it out. Now, this phrase holy ones there, there's there's some talk and disagreement about what it could mean. It, it, It could refer to us as the holy ones coming back with Jesus. It could refer to angels. The word can refer to both. Which one it refers to, I'm not sure. So if that wrecks your perception to hear from me. I'm sorry, but I'm just not sure which one it is. Personally, I kind of lean towards it could be both, and this is why. Um, In Revelation 19, it's very clearly described that the saints that are raptured with him uh, prior to the tribulation will be coming back with Jesus at the second coming. Very clearly described in Revelation 19. And then in Colossians 3, 4, it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's this very clear teaching that we come back with Christ at the second coming. But if you go into Matthew 24 and 25 and you look at the judgments that'll be poured out at the end and the second coming of Christ there, you see a very clear picture that it says angels will, will be there to help. So, so him coming back with tens of thousands of his holy ones could be us, could be angels, could be both. But the point is, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But then it says he's coming back to execute judgment on all. Now, contextually, it's all the ungodly, and that tells us that his judgment will be universal. Every single person who has said no to God will face judgment. The wrath of God will fall upon you if you say no to God in his truth and his way. Because there is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible tells us. And without having received the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, you will remain one of the ungodly that judgment will fall upon. The fourth thing is that the judgment will be absolutely fair and you will admit that. He says he comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. When we hear that word convict, we typically think of convict means to pass judgment, but he just dealt with that, right? He's coming to execute judgment. What that word convict means in the original language is to convince of wrongdoing. To convince of wrongdoing. What God will do in the final judgment is he will convince the ungodly that his judgment upon them is completely fair and completely warranted and completely right. There will be no, it's not fair at the end. Those who are judged will be like, yep, it's, it's right and it's fair. And so if you think, you know, I'm gonna stand here against God, and he can't, look, in the end, you will be fully convinced. If God's judgment falls upon you, you will be fully convinced of the fairness of that judgment. And when you think about the judgment of God like a courtroom scene, you have God as the judge. God's also the prosecution, which is interesting. But it's it's a perfect judgment because God, we know, the scripture tells us he is omnipresent. God is everywhere at all times, right? That means God is the perfect eyewitness to every sin every single one of us has ever committed. The perfect eyewitness. I saw it. I was there. But then we also know biblically that God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. What does that tell us? He didn't just see it, he wasn't just an eyewitness, but he also knows our motivation, he knows why. The perfect judgment will fall, because he is the perfect witness, he is the perfect one who knows every reason why you did it. I mean, you're you're not gonna have an answer. You're not gonna have an excuse. And so his judgment on sin and sinners will be absolutely fair. And then the last thing is that it will be forever. Back in verse 13, he referenced um, these people and he says, for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. As I said earlier, this life is the only opportunity we have to get right with God. This life is the only opportunity to get right with him because after this life, the Bible says, is the judgment, the judgment of God. No waiting room, no purgatories. There's only eternal life or eternal punishment. And Jesus came as God in the flesh. He came and died for your sins so that you and I could receive eternal life. And if you don't know him today as your personal Lord and Savior, listen up. He came for you. He died for you. Because the sin in your life, which is breaking of God's law, you can't stop. I know you've tried. You can't stop. And even so, there is nothing you can do to pay the price for what you've already done. You're a sinner. And as a sinner, you are guilty of breaking God's law. And as a guilty criminal, you deserve the punishment. You deserve the sentence. But all you have to do is believe in him, who he is, what he did, that it was for you personally that his death on the cross was to pay the price for your sin. Believe that he is God. He is your creator. Come to this earth to pay a price that you couldn't pay. To pay a penalty you couldn't pay. He came to redeem you, to buy your salvation, which means he came to save you from his coming judgment on sin. And if you put your faith in him, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's what his word says. The truth is that only through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, will you find salvation, will you find eternal life. That is the truth and the truth also is without him as your savior, you will face his absolutely fair and right judgment and spend forever in eternal punishment for all the sin that you've ever committed. I plead with you today to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, judgment does not make God happy as the world will sometimes try and spin. God is not sitting on his throne waiting for the day where he gets to rain fire and brimstone down, brimstone down upon the earth. Ooh, ooh. That's not God. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says this, tell them As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn away from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. It isn't God's will that any should perish, but that all would have everlasting life. The offer is available to you today. It's a free offer. Just believe in him and put your faith and trust in what he did for you and you will have eternal life. But if you choose judgment by rejecting Jesus and his offer of forgiveness and salvation, he will honor your wishes. And he will allow you to pay the price for your sins forever, suffering suffering forever in hell, which incidentally is a place he didn't even design for us, he designed it for the devil and his demons. But if you say, God, I don't want your truth, I want my own truth, the truth is, you will suffer forever in torment but it doesn't have to be that way and you don't have to be a part of that. James 2.13 tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. God loves to show mercy. God loves to forgive. God loves to grant salvation and the hope of heaven to those who would cry out to him. God loves to save those from the judgment that he has to pour out on sin. And he wants to do that for you today when someone recognizes that their ungodliness deserves punishment, and says, Jesus, I believe you are God. I believe you died for me. Please forgive me of all my sin. He says every time, absolutely, it's done. You are forgiven, because he loves to do that. But you have to come to him. You have to cry out to him. You have to call out to him. You have to ask and receive him. So let's do that right now. Father God, we trust you, God. We trust in you and your word. We trust in your way and your method. We trust in your purpose and your plan. God, your word is very clear that you created the heavens and the earth. You created us in your image and we have sinned against you. God, we try to come up with all types of alternate methods and reasons to to justify our life. God, we come up with false faiths and false versions of Jesus and absolutely, completely corrupt false faiths altogether so that we can somehow justify the life we want to live in pursuing our own selfishness and our own pleasure. And God, you call that sin. It's when we have violated your law and who you created us to be, and how you created us to live, God, when we violate that, that is sin. And the breaking of your law, God, requires justice. And so, Lord, we know the truth of your word is that judgment will fall on all the ungodly who have committed ungodly acts, and all who have said things against you in their ungodly ways using ungodly words, Lord. And God, we pray today for those that are maybe in this room or watching online that the truth of your coming judgment, Lord, has spoken to them this morning and they know that they need to repent of their sin. They need to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior so that they can be saved and forgiven and washed clean. To be saved from the judgment to come. And so God, we pray for those right now that they would receive you And while we're praying with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if God has spoken to you this morning in this room, spoken to you of the truth of his coming judgment, spoken to you of the truth of the danger and the destruction that comes with false truths about who he is and false faiths and lies about spirituality and salvation, and the Spirit of God is calling you to him this morning, I just want you, wherever you're seated, just to raise your hand and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ this morning. God bless you. Anybody else? God is speaking to your heart right now, and you know you need him because without him, there is no hope. Just raise your hand up where I can see it. Let me pray with you this morning. God bless you in the back. God bless you too. You as well in the back. I see all of you. Anybody else? God is speaking to your heart this morning about your need for him. If you're online, obviously I can't see you. But if God has spoken to you and you want to receive Jesus Christ this morning, just say it in chat. That I want to receive Jesus. Anybody else before we pray, God is speaking to your heart right now of your desperate need for him as your Lord and Savior. All right, those of you that raised your hand, those of you online, and maybe if you're sitting there and you didn't raise your hand but you know you need to do this, I want you to pray with me. It's a simple prayer, but it's a prayer of acknowledging who God is, acknowledging what he's done, acknowledging your need for him. So pray with me and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are God. I know I've sinned against you. I know I've broken your law. I know I've tried to live according to my own ways. But God, you have revealed to me that I need you, that your ways are the right ways. You have revealed to me that judgment will come, and it is right. But God, I ask that you would save me today, to deliver me from the judgment to become Lord of my life, to seal me with the Holy Spirit of promise that I wouldn't be an enemy of God, but a child of God. Thank you for loving me so much that you would die for my sin on the cross. Thank you for taking my penalty and paying my payment. Thank you. Help me to live for you. Help me to shine for you. And help me to warn others of the coming judgment. I love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. If you receive Jesus for the first time this morning, um, we wanna help you on this, this, this walk, this journey, right? You've just entered into a relationship with God, no longer as his enemy, but now as his child, as a part of the family of God. And just like any relationship, it's like, okay, what do I do now and what's next, right? We want to help you on that. That's what we're here for as a church, to teach you and to guide you and to help you. And so one of the first steps is is up front here or out in our foyer, we have what we call new believers packets. It's a little white envelope that says, welcome to God's family on the front. And so that's free. Please take one. It has some information inside to help you now to start build the habits that are really, really important to building this relationship you have with your creator now you know the bible tells us that when one soul gives gives uh gets saved that the entire host of heaven celebrate and i'm just so excited for the celebration that has taken place in the heavens right now because your soul is saved amen amen so i know as we're moving towards christmas season we're like yay christmas fire and brimstone right we're 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 we're, this is all going to dovetail together here um, as we go through it but it's important that that we that we preach and teach the word of God and stand on his truth because it is his truth that saves but for those that got saved today, we want to celebrate with you. We're going to celebrate in worship right now to praise his name for what he's done. And again, please make sure you grab one of these new believers packets if you, um, before you leave today. If you're online and you gave your life to the Lord, just let us know in chat. We'll mail one out to you. So with that, God bless you guys. I pray God just continues to bless your life and your walk and your relationship, especially those moments where you're called to stand for the truth and might be a little afraid to do so. It's important that we do and God will grant you the strength to do it to do it. God bless you guys.